You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. So, Kelly, we're out here, out at Lanza Park, under the Founders Oak. Tell me, what what do you feel? What do you see? What do you hear while we're while we're standing underneath this big guy? Just a amazing oak tree, just a specimen, almost beyond words. It almost looks like a an alien sea creature coming up out of the earth, spawned by the river with four humongous branches that rise up and create almost like a cathedral over our heads and um and shaggy thick bark just just a tree that's so tough that it stands the endurance of time the founder's oak of new Braunfels, texas that was an on-site description of it by kelly ebby the former urban forester of New Braunfels, along with Emily King, the city forester in nearby Austin. Emily is co-hosting today, as I've invited her to be the Texas correspondent for our show. There's so much to learn about this 300-year-old live oak, which has given shelter to a Spanish mission, a German prince who brought thousands of settlers, old Texas families that date back to the Alamo, and the Comanche Nation. Come along as Emily and I learn why this tree has been so important to so many different people for so long, especially now. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree. My sweetheart is gone, I'm so lonely. She said that she and I were through. So I started drinking booze for pastime, driving nails in my coffin over you. So, Emily, I'm so happy to have you on this old tree. Welcome. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. We've been corresponding about trees um, and the show. And I said I've always wanted to do a show about a tree in Texas. This is true. I, I did send you kind of a fangirl email. And lucky me, you replied and <laughs> were interested in, in doing a show on a Texas tree. Yes. <laughs> well, I learned so much in the interim. I, I've learned that trees are very, very important in Texas. And you've been involved in that tree world for, for quite a while as city forester in Austin. Is that your title? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm Austin's urban forester. And yes, we, we love our trees in Texas, and we've got some really neat resources online to help folks explore uh, what we have, where they are, and, you know, pictures of them and what their stories are. One of them is the famous trees of Texas, which you pointed me to. Who's that run by? Um, the Texas A&M Forest Service hosts this, this website, and, and they, they keep it up to date. It was fascinating. I got lost in all of the stories, clicking back and forth and looking at the trees. Um, a lot of work has gone into recognizing historic trees all around the state. 
Yeah, the, the state agency also maintains our big tree registry as well. So if you like trees that are just big and might not have a documented story, there there is something for that too. And we'll include that website address in the show notes. The Founders Oak in New Braunfels caught my attention because of its unusual association with a German prince, Prince Karl of Sams Braunfels, of all people. So seemingly strange, right? Well, it, to me, it's kind of it's kind of fun that that jumps out for you. Um, there's a lot of small German communities in and around Texas, um, so I find it a little bit less surprising, but still very interesting. Um, but a couple of questions came up that we decided to delve into together. Who were the founders suggested by the Founders Oak, and what are their stories? And were their stories unique, or do they somehow capture the essence of the founding of Texas itself? You know, uh, Texas is pretty proud of its history. Um, we have a whole theme park called Six Flags over Texas that, you know, that that speaks to all the different, um, you know, flags that have flown uh, over this state. And as, as we're going to learn more, you know, the, the German history, it, there was not a German flag flown here. And um, there's also quite a bit of Native American history, obviously, no flags associated with that either. So there's layers upon layers of cultures that have inhabited this area where this oak resides. So we both interviewed um, a couple different people. And to start off, I had a conversation with Tim Barker, a longtime member of the New Brunfels community who had a lot to share about the city's founding and the cherished oak tree that stood witness to it all. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, yeah. I love your Texas shirt that you've got on. Hey, how about that for the flag of Texas, huh? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Texas are kind of proud. Um you were telling me that you live right across the street from Landa Park and the Founders Oak. Is that correct? Yes, we're so blessed. And I didn't realize that when I bought this property, I inherited that whole park, which means responsibility for taking care of it. Yeah, you know, We have a tremendous parks department, but there's always things that need to be done and they need to be reminded about, you know, the walls and the trimming and whatever, but they're wonderful people to work with. And um, we've been doing so, uh, we've been here almost 33 years now. So it's gotten better and better. Wow, isn't it? An historic house? Yeah, the house was built in 1846. And it's a, uh, uh, it's called a rubble construction. Wasn't New Brunfels founded right about that time? Uh, New Brunfels was uh, founded essentially 1845. So it's very close time frame. Yeah, so it was built the year after. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and the, the first owner, first owner's name was George Kloppenbach. And he became like the one of the first mayors. German, yeah, we're gonna get into that. So can you see the founders oak from your house? There are so many trees in this on our property and um, in the land of park that I cannot do a direct sight. But if I walk we're on the side of a hill. So if I walk down to the road. And look across, I can see it from the road, but it's just so many uh, trees. It's not a direct sight. Right. I bet at one point you could see the oak. Main tree here we have is the Texas live oak. So they really don't become dormant. So they're pretty much all green all year round until May. 
a March when they drop their leaves. So that's the main uh, type of tree between here and the live the founder's oak, which is a live oak tree also. Structurally, it's very pretty. And to me, I think of it kind of like a big chandelier and that it's uh, so tall. And you know, sometimes when the tree gets older, they don't have as many leaves, but they have a lot of branches. So you see these kind of protruding things that go out. That's great. I've never heard a tree described as a chandelier. So it's like an upside down chandelier. Yeah, I guess you say upside down. But uh, anyhow, it, where its location, it protrudes over such an area. So you can look up and, and see the big branches that are all around oh, the tree. Oh, I see. And then the branches dangle down like a yeah, like chandelier. The, the crystals on a chandelier. Right. That's beautiful. How far back does your family go? I'm a sixth generation. And my great-great-great-grandfather fought for Texas independence from Mexico at the Battle of San Jacinto. And so that battle followed the, uh, the battle at the Alamo, in which Texas got whipped there. And so that inspired a lot of them. And so, uh, but his involvement was to uh, take care of the mules and horses that are involved in supporting the uh, military. Tim explained that New Braunfels has always been all about the springs. The Founders Oak has had all the advantages. From, uh, from my garden, I can see the, uh, the big springs that come out from the mountainside and uh, go make a big turn and go into a lake because all the land of park is uh, encircled in water. I mean, it's just uh, uh, the water is so clear. And right now we don't have enough of it, but it's so clear. And You're not a stranger to drought. No, but I still don't like it. <laughs> yeah. right especially being a gardener and see things suffer you know that's that's the hard part what's your first memory of the founder's oak uh, well uh, when the uh, six families would get together and come to Bonfils and everybody brought their fried chicken and we uh, uh, set up a table by there's a little pool here it's called the kitty waiting pool and uh, I guess we have a very large uh uh, spring-fed pool, which is one of the largest in, in, in Texas, thanks to all spring-fed. But it, it's just all the uh, the greenery. and uh, You're so lucky you have that spring. This is really the start of what they call the hill country. And there's an old joke about why didn't Jack and Jill go up the hill? Because they lived in the hill country. Well, yeah. I'm on the side of the hill going up, and there's an escarpment. And from one side, it goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and it's a rich uh, cultivated land, whatever. And then you do this climb up into the, what we call the hill country, and it's all limestone, and, but a beautiful uh, coverage of the live oak tree. Um, do you think that the oak survived this long because of the springs and the availability of water below ground? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. You know, to be that size, I have a huge oak in my yard too. Um, and but it's not as big as old as that one. But also have the native uh, Texas pecan tree, which is almost as a big diameter. And that's because at that level, there's seepage from the uh, springs from the uh, the uh, route of the springs that are able to come over and water because unless pecan trees get water, they don't do anything. That's the uh, tree of Texas, right? The state that's right. tree. And, and, and you're right. So 
Thanks very much for sending the recent book. Um, it's called New Braunfels Historic Landa Park, Its Springs and Its People. So much appreciated for that. Could you tell me about the authors who are uh, Rosemary Gregory and Arlene Seals? Why did they write this book? Well, they are both local, local locals, uh, people who grew up here, best friends. I mean, you don't see one without the other. And uh, but Rosemary has always been the one who wrote a, a book about different things. And I think that she felt there was something missing and not a complete history of Landa Park. So I think that she said it's time to do it. So uh, being friends for Landa Park, um, board members, she tapped everybody. She knew everybody. She knew their dogs, their maiden name, you know, and all <laughs> kind of things. Uh, and she has a tremendous memory recall. You know, she's she's uh, about 90-ish, you know, thereabouts early. She's in her early 90s right now. Yeah, right now. But she volunteered to do it, you know, and not only did she uh, uh, have the desire to do it, but she knew all the people who had the money to help fund this. So we had sure. to go to those folks to get the seed money for publishing the book. And she was very successful. So yeah. she's a local historian. She has a column, right? That's right. Uh, every other week in the local newspaper called the Herald Zeitung. The book on historic Landa Park is a treasure, and Ms. Gregory and Ms. Seal should be proud of their achievement. In fact, the best way for Tim to discuss New Braunfels' history was simply to quote the book. It's all in there. So we said that New Braunfels was settled in 1845 or became a town, but before that, it was a Spanish mission. Could you tell me who was there and what? What happened to it? Yeah, there's not a lot of information uh, about that. Uh, so let me just kind of read you what I what's written in the book here, because that's about all that I know, too. Let's see. Uh, the mission was established near the Springs in 1756 at the urging of the Mayais, an Indian tribe, M-A-Y-E-Y-E-S, a band of the Tonkawa tribe was the mission they call Nuestra Sonora de Guadalupe. Frequent raids by the Comanches caused the mission to be abandoned in 1758. You know, so here was two years and it was gone. Did not last very long. No. San Antonio, that's the spot where all the 1700 missions and there were about four or five. And my wife and I were married in one of those uh, beautiful, beautiful Spanish missions. I see. So that was not a major part of the New Braunfels no. history. No. But you mentioned the newspaper is the Herald Zeitung, which is a German word for newspaper. Right. And so the town of New Braunfels is, has a really fascinating beginning because it was settled by a German prince who was also a military officer, Prince Karl of Salms Braunfels. All right. Who was he? And what was he doing coming to the Texas frontier? Okay. I'm going to read from the book here because they say it very well. And uh, uh, German Prince Karl of Salms Braunfels was the commissioner general for the Society for the Protection of the German Immigrant in Texas, also known in Texas as the German Immigration Company. 
So what, they had an organization called the Adelsverein, the Society of the Noblemen. Its members were royalty. Their purpose was to relieve overcrowding in Germany by settling fellow countrymen in a new land and in the process obtain a good trading partner. Their main interest was to make a profit from future business arrangements in the colonial establishment while establishing new homes for their fellow Germans. I see. So it was overcrowding. And I know that there was constant warfare in that time, too. So that might have had something to do with it. Yeah. And I don't think that people could own their land. But here you got land. When you came, you were given a certain amount of land. And it's yours. Yeah. Prince Karl of Salms Braunfels was a minor German prince whose family had lost its land during the Napoleonic period in the early 1800s. Subsequently, the German states were ruled by Austrian leadership. Karl was landless, so he became an officer in the Austrian military and later the cavalry of the Grand Duchy of Hesse. During his service, Prince Karl read books about Texas and was enraptured by the promise of open land and fertile country. He joined the Adelsverein, becoming its commissioner, which was a society established by German dukes to organize mass immigration to Texas. They thought this could be a new Germany. Texas at the time was selling land grants to encourage settlers. The Adelsverein already had the rights to one large land grant, and Prince Karl made the long, exploratory trip to Texas during the summer of 1844 to check it out. When there, he determined that the perfect location for a settlement was nearby along the Guadalupe River. It had flowing springs and, of course, our esteemed live oak tree. On behalf of the Adelsverein, he purchased that land too. The new colony was called New Braunfels. More than 4,000 Germans immigrated to New Braunfels and the surrounding area. Prince Karl had returned to Germany and never made it back to Texas. It turns out he didn't have much business acumen and wasn't so good with the logistics of colonization. It was messy business, and the founding of the town was left to his successor, John Musebach. You can read all about that history, but let's just say it wasn't easy. I just did a little bit of reading, and Prince Carl apparently read about Texas. You know, he, there were these books circulating about Texas, and he thought, this is a great place. Yeah. Of those things. And, and there are pictures, or uh, graphic things, showing what New Braunfels looked like through the eyes of the artist. So they would send those uh, drawings to the people in different countries to invite them to come. And that was certainly the case in Germany. And we have some of those nearby here, too, where you have the, the, the graphics of it, which is really very pretty. I would love to see some of those drawings. Do you have them in town? I'm sure. I know we have some at, the, at our library. You know, there's so many uh, uh, pictures in the different books about large groups sitting under the Founders Oak that represented some convention that was here. And, uh, but it's always been a spot where there's water and there's shade. So, you know, you can't beat that. And that environment to where all these uh, mill things were is now owned by a, a group that has every year a, a big worst fest celebration in, in, in November. Uh, and it incorporates all those buildings and the water. And, and it's just a beautiful spot. So 
So that's a German celebration. Are there still a lot of people of German descent in New Braunfels? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're members of the uh, uh, St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church here. And uh, sometimes when certain of the German families show up, they fill the whole pew. You know, it's about 12 people in there. So there's still a lot of uh, German people who are very active and, and uh, uh, were really instrumental in getting things started and organized and keeping an eye on things. You mentioned people meeting under the tree. Do you know of any specific meetings or stories about that? Yes. Um, there's one picture in the book that shows the uh, organization, I guess, throughout Texas of people who were in, involved with granaries. And that was what Lando's business was. So they have pictures of them uh, in areas that he developed and pictures of them underneath the founder's oak. But uh, any activity, uh, downtown is just like three blocks away from Lando Park. So any activity that was downtown always went to Lando Park for anything, a picnic and it, uh, big dance floors. And and uh, when Harry Lando had it, they had concession stands. So it was a, an attractant to... Uh, have people come after they had parades or whatever was going on downtown. And so the tree was a witness to it all. Yes. Yes. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Emily speaks to Kelly Ebby about how the Founders Oak attained its official status as a famous tree of Texas and about some of the preservation efforts over time. But while its name relates to the founding of New Brunfels by European settlers, tree is receiving new recognition that is long overdue. The Founders Oak had already been sacred to the Comanches. You're listening to This Old Tree. Now when I get up in the morning and I'm feeling mighty low, there's just one thing that'll pep me up, and I want you all to know. Well, it happens every morning, no matter where I'm at. I've just got to have a cup of coffee and a cigarette. Now, eggs over easy. And ham hey, Kelly, welcome to this old tree. I am excited to talk with you today about the Founders Oak. We've known each other for a while, yeah? Yeah, at least, gosh, at least. 16 years, maybe 15 years. I'm thinking so. My, my, my recollection of getting to know you better was skeet shooting with an ISA Texas uh, board members retreat out in College Station. And I feel like that might yeah. have been 2008, 2009. There's a lot of foresters in Central Texas, but I do feel like it's still a small community. So, you know, when, when you start doing this work in this vicinity, it's, it's, kind of meet everybody. I always say the tree world is a small world. <laughs> right. Well, and so I'm curious, um, Kelly, when, when you became the urban forester for New Braunfels, did you already know about the Founders Oak? You know, I attended Wurstfest, which is a popular German festival when I was a child, but I do not remember the rest of the park. Um, so I interviewed for the position as the city's first urban forester back in 2008. And I 
remember driving in to do the interview and just seeing a mystical landscape with the crystal clear water and it was um, cold outside so the river was steaming look at this giant mystical tree Um, so it was one of the things that drew me in for sure the tree is a little less than 50 feet tall and has a like a hundred foot wide canopy spanning in different directions. It's just kind of just creates like a, a cover, a canopy, a roof where you, where you feel like you are secure under the, the shelter of that tree. And so um, with two main uh, branches that come out. So, um, so I'm curious, Kelly, so, so you didn't really necessarily know very much about the tree when you, when you started that position. Was it yet designated one of the famous trees of Texas? It received that designation later in uh, about 2010. I believe we started the application process. And then um, 2012 is when it finally received that designation. It was a very thorough application process through the Texas A&M Forest Service. And what was really interesting was they hadn't had a application for a famous tree in like 50 years oh wow so did you did you initiate that application process I I did and I I had a lot of help from volunteers there are a lot of community advocates in New Braunfels uh, garden club members friends for the preservation of historic land park there are a lot of people that have a vested interest in the, the health of the trees in their community, and especially in that park. You know, we had some challenging droughts in about 2011, um, where I had to, you know, engage the community and doing and our park staff in doing more work to preserve the trees. Uh, they they did install a drip irrigation system in 2010. Uh, we amended the soil with compost. We mulched the tree. Uh, we did a root collar excavation to ensure there were no, nothing restricting the, the growth of the tree around the base of the tree and that it wasn't compromised. Monitored the vigor of the growth of the tree on the tips of the leaves. <laughs> And, and prune the tree of deadwood. And well, and I, I kind of want to go back to that famous tree designation. Um, just this past weekend, um, I got a copy of Famous Trees of Texas. I got, it's a first edition print. And um, this is a beautiful book. And I flipped through it looking for your tree, looking for Founder's Oak. And only after flipping front to back did I realize, oh yeah, this is a first edition. It came out in 1970. I, I didn't. I don't think I knew before this conversation that you were the one that initiated that designation. So I really want to give you kind of a high five and a pat on the back. That's nice work. It, like I said, it was it was a group effort. <laughs> yeah, uh, they even held a contest back in 1986 to. Um, with the state sesquicentennial celebration to name the tree, and uh, the woman who who named the tree, she was in attendance during the. She came to the the celebration, so that was pretty pretty amazing that they were able to 
hunt her down and and she was able to attend the celebration. Oh, that's fantastic. Who who else do you remember being there at that celebration? I know, I guess it's been about 10 years ago at this point, but. New Braunfels has been through a lot of different cultural, cultural hotspot. Um, so they included um, the indigenous nations. Uh, Dr. Mario Garza came to speak and um I believe he did some flute music as well. Uh, he's he's very well, well known in um, our region. There's a lot of history of um, indigenous people in uh, around the springs. Um, they found a lot of archaeological uh, items that date over 10,000 years from different tribes. And uh, they had Spanish folklorial dancers come because uh, there used to be a Spanish mission in the region. We had a bagpiper <laughs> come um, through through personal <laughs> personal knowledge. Uh, Texas bagpiper Robert Eby, my husband also was there. Um, Texas A and M Forest Service Paul Johnson, uh, Dolores. Schumann, uh, lots, lots of really great people that helped bring the, the cultural history of that area. So that was really, really, really fun and magical event. Do you have, do you have a favorite story related to Founders Oak? Uh, I think one of the things I wanted to also mention is there's a photo in the parks office from over a hundred years ago with um, German settlers picnicking under the tree. And um, it just, it always struck a chord because, you know, they're wearing so much clothing. <laughs> they're wearing long dresses and long sleeves and hats. And I'm just like, well, they're, they're enjoying the air conditioning under the tree. That, that shade just has provided so much for people for so long. <laughs> Um, but there have been other people that have cared and maintained the tree. Um, we also had uh, Jess Divin, who was a forester for New Braunfels and currently now uh, Josh King. I know that everyone is trying their best to, to keep it around for the future generations. In addition to the famous Tree of Texas designation, our tree will be receiving an entirely new honor. In fall of 2023, the Founders Oak will officially be recognized as a Comanche marker tree. To learn more about this fascinating topic, I was pointed to Steve Hauser, the person in Texas chiefly responsible for putting marker trees on the map, quite literally. His humble nature and great respect for the Comanche Nation quickly became apparent. Well, I'm a certified arborist, consulting arborist, and tree climber for over 43 years in our area. Uh, I am also the chair for the Texas Historic Tree Coalition's Indian Marker Tree Committee. Great. So you're a tree climber, too. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Most all of my life till I got older. <laughs> I still climb, but not like I used to. Well, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. 
First of all, what's the Texas Historic Tree Coalition and how did you become involved in it? Well, the Historic Tree Coalition is an all-volunteer nonprofit established in 1995, primarily to fight a battle over trees at a local hospital. Uh, since that time, we fought many battles over the years. One of the things that's on our website is our handbook for tree advocacy uh, that we encourage people to use if they're fighting their own battles in their own areas. But shortly after we established, uh, we realized that uh, we can't preserve trees that we fail to recognize are significant. And that's kind of the bottom line. You know, we started to realize we've got to start recognizing all the significant trees we can find in the state. Right. You have a stronger argument in preservation if you say this is an historic tree. Right. And that's part of the purpose. So our mission is to find, research, recognize, preserve, and celebrate significant trees in the state of Texas. That's fantastic. How long have you been in existence? Since 1995. I wonder how many trees you've saved over that time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I can tell you it's been hundreds of battles in the area uh, over trees and really around the state. Um, it's interesting you phrased it in terms of battles. Have you, over time, found that the battles are becoming more, you know, cooperative as you've, you know, your educational efforts have increased or just over time? Oh, I think people are becoming more aware of the benefits of trees probably the last five or 10 years than they were previously. Uh, secondly, we're always very reasonable and responsible in the approach that we take. So, you know, we're not emotional out there chaining ourselves to trees and things like that. We're very reasonable, responsible, fact-based types of uh, information that we gather. Uh, so we base our, our battles a lot of times on just the facts. Uh, in 2005, we convinced uh, Dallas Mayor Laura Miller to establish an urban forest advisory committee in the city. So we've worked with the city on all kinds of different things since that time. And one of the purposes was we always fought these battles as uh, outsiders. They always called us outsiders. So this gave us an opportunity to be insiders that were appointed by the mayor. And, you know, that kind of forced people to listen a little bit more. That's fantastic. Um, I love that approach. I understand the Founders Oak in New Braunfels is being designated an official Comanche marker tree. Could you tell me what a marker tree is? Well, a marker tree is one that was used by American Indian tribes for various purposes, uh, such as turning trees, ceremonial trees, treaties slash council uh, trees, of which the uh, Founders Oak, which was recently recognized, was considered to be a council oak which means that the Comanches, there are different bands would meet underneath it. Sometimes other tribes would meet underneath the tree, uh, primarily because of the significance of the area. You know, Landa Park is well known uh, for the Como River. It goes right through the park near the tree. It's one of the largest springs nearby in the state of Texas that has fresh, clean water. Uh, and the Camino Real Trail, which is one of the earliest trails in the state of Texas, went right through the park. So it was kind of a, an easy argument on this one to point out that the Comanches had to have been there in the past. 
So this tree isn't just a marker tree, it's also a council tree. Is there a distinction? Well, it is a type. There are many different types of marker trees. And uh, the council oak is just one of the different types of marker trees. So the Comanches don't really recognize a trail marker. They call them turning trees. So if you're going down a trail and you find one of these trees, it told you where to turn. And you got to remember, you know, even today, if we tell somebody directions out in the wilderness, it will be go to that odd shaped tree and follow the direction that is pointing. So, you know, even if it was created by nature, doesn't mean it's not a marker tree. Many of the marker trees have been shaped over time, but that's not necessarily... Right, and that's the first thing that people think. A marker tree has to be bent. How, how we find them, the process is explained more in our book, Comanche Marker Trees of Texas, which is published about uh, 2017, 2016. Uh, that gave us the opportunity to tell the Comanche story about these trees. Now, you uh, co-authored that book, correct? That's correct. And the other author? Uh, the other author is Jimmy Arterberry, who is a uh, tribal elder. He was the tribal historic preservation officer for over 20-something years. He was also the tribal administrator for the tribe uh, for a few years, not too long ago. So he's pretty well known in the industry. Uh, the other author was Linda Pallon, who is a, a professor in anthropology as well. The process that we use to uh, identify them, but it begins when somebody submits an application and photographs a lot of times through our website, which is txhtc.org. Uh, so they submit information, we review it. Uh, some of them are ruled out pretty quickly because they're just not large enough or old enough. You have to understand that the Comanches haven't been in Texas for over 150 years. And it requires at least usually a 20-inch tree or more uh, to qualify as being old enough. Where are they now? Up in Lawton, Oklahoma. All the tribe was moved up to Oklahoma uh, over 150 years ago. So, you know, 20 inches is kind of the bare minimum. That's the smallest that we found that was growing on solid rock. Uh, and we found it to be old enough due to uh, ring dating. A lot of times we'll take off a dead limb. I don't want to be disrespectful of the elders and the tribe. And I don't want to core bore into these trees because if they are true marker trees, the last thing I want to do is damage them or hurt them. So I take off dead limbs, read the growth rings to determine a growth rate, which gets me in the ballpark as to how old the tree may be. So if a tree has potential, we typically ask for more history on the site, more of the details if we can find them. And then we go out to visit the tree to collect more data and photographs. So the next step after that is to research the tree, the site, the area to ensure the Comanches were likely to have been on the site and to find the purpose of the tree. Sometimes it's a grove of tree, trees that, uh, what purpose did they serve? Uh, in other words, all uh, marker trees had a purpose. The archeologists that we work with 
have a lot of information that kind of helps us to qualify a tree. With the Founders Oak, you know, there's archaeological research on that site that goes back thousands of years, which helps us to prove that it was a very important site to tribes even before the Comanches were here. So who decides that a particular tree has met all of the criteria and yes, it's going to receive this specific designation? Well, that's that's one of the things, you know, once we've researched everything on a site that we can find a potential for, you know, the purpose for the tree or trees, we respectfully submit the information primarily to Jimmy Arterberry for consideration. So it's the tribe that ultimately decides. Right. I'm just a volunteer that works on the process, supplies the information. They're the authorities that recognize the tree. And, you know, out of what, 800 trees now uh, and almost 30 years of working on it, I think we're up to about 15 or 16 trees. You know, there's other tribes around the nation that seem to recognize their presence or the presence of marker trees. But to the best of my knowledge, the Comanche are the only tribe that officially recognize trees today or in the recent past, which makes them very unique from that perspective. Uh, another reason that I'm so proud and honored to be able to work with them, as well as many other reasons. So Comanche marker trees are considered to be sacred to begin with. Uh, the Comanche have a great reverence for trees and for nature. You know, the, the first time that I was really getting to know them, we were walking to the first tree that we ever recognized, and I was talking to James Yellowfish, one of the tribal elders, and I said something to him about, uh, you guys seem to know a lot about nature. He took off his glasses, grabbed me by the shoulders, and pulled me up to where our faces were a few inches apart, and he said, we are one with nature. And it raised goosebumps on my arms. It still does when I think about that day. And I think being one with nature is not something uh, the public even thinks about today. Nature is something that's outside. We're inside. So being one with nature was, you know, that one phrase that he gave to me really hooked me on this. And I thought, oh, this is something I've got to spend time on. That's powerful. You've got to consider, you know, what was important 150, 200 years ago, food, water, shelter, and direction, and marker trees provided a lot of that. So you also have to consider uh, that we took American Indians away from their land, and the way we treated them was just absolutely sickening to me. Uh, this is why certain trees and specific sites in Texas mean a great deal to their cultural heritage. And why working with them, to me, is so important. If you really learn about the way that we treated the American Indians, not just the Comanches, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and so I feel that I'm doing my part. It won't ever make amends for what's happened, uh, but I always try to do my part. Um, so, you know, when we celebrated a tree a few years ago in Holiday, Texas, and which is one that we recently got on our website, um, there was over 100 tribal members that came to that event to celebrate it. So that gives you an idea of how important that tree is to their culture. I will state one of the things that they told me once, and that was that Texas history didn't start when the white man arrived. Uh, and that's so true. There's a great deal of tribal history that's not well known or explored. Uh, and that's why Jimmy Arterbury wrote 
Uh, it's a Comanche Nation research report for the Texas Department of Transportation that's on our website. So if you really want to learn a lot about the Comanche history from somebody who really knows, you can go to our website and, and find that uh, text.report. report. There are other tribes that we do work with. We've recognized historic trees, like down in Waco a number of years. We work with the Waco, Wichita, Kichi or Kichai, Tawakani and the Caddo Indians, uh, which are all together in one office actually up in Oklahoma to recognize some of their trees. Now they aren't really considered marker trees, but they are historic trees that uh, have a play in their history in Texas as well. You know, once a tree is finally recognized, to me, it's very rewarding. You know, I've always been proud and deeply honored to be able to work with the Comanches to help them reconnect with a significant part of their history. That's basically what I do, and it's very rewarding to be able to actually have one that's recognized and, and it turns out. You've heard Jimmy Arterberry's name come up a couple of times, the Comanche Nation tribal elder, former administrator and historian. Well, Emily had the privilege of speaking with him, and we are very lucky to have him on this old tree to talk about the search for Comanche marker trees and the meaning behind it all. Coming up after the break. talk with you this afternoon <laughs> it's it's this is a treat um thank you thank you for your time yeah i'm excited i'm excited to like talk about the topic today well it's a it's a tree topic we can't go wrong it's a tree tree and culture topic there's a host of different types of marker trees that that indicate different things and and you described it as a as a as a tex, taxonomy of of marker trees I just I find that really really interesting and and would love to dig into that a little bit more. That's exactly right. A lot of people, you know, when they hear marker tree, they do what you just mentioned about you know kind of modified or a bent tree, something kind of unusual. But the reality is that the chapter in my book is called Comanche Marker Tree Taxonomy. Comanche marker slash turning slash pointing slash leaning bent trees, medicine trees. So the idea is that a marker tree. You know, it doesn't have to be one that has been modified. It can be one that through the years has just, you know, grown naturally, but stands out in a landscape or at a location that marks a spot or that people maybe intuitively are drawn to, you know, that kind of tells a story about a place. And I consider all trees service trees. They all serve a different purpose. Some, you know, for medicinal, some for food. And other uses, there's a lot of uses for trees. So that's kind of the great thing about creating this taxonomy was kind of from a cultural, Comanche cultural perspective. So it's the idea was to say, you know, well, these are the type of trees 
you know, that means something to us that we used for, you know, various purposes. But the beauty of it is that amongst all cultures and all communities, they can decide for themselves because they'll, if they understood that taxonomy, they could actually create their own, kind of to satisfy their own understanding of what a tree in their community or in their culture means to them specifically. And around the world, it's like, you know, different cultures, you know, use trees as a means of, um, you know, like I said, either ceremonial purpose, religious purposes, uh, medicinal, um, council, gathering places, um, even just trees that kids like to climb because, you know, they're enticing. It, it really does take you down a path. Um, I, you know, I think about trees that I can easily draw to mind in my vicinity and like my geographic area and which ones I kind of unconsciously, you know, use as marker trees for, for this or that. Um, when we spoke the other day, I, I shared uh, driving to, to my mom's house. There's a tree that marks, you know, the two, two thirds of the way there. And it's, yes. So just very picturesque. It's very huge. It's had a bend in the road. It absolutely is a, a marker tree for me. <laughs> it's really very fascinating because people can really connect. And it, it, it's a serious, lighthearted subject. I know that working for the tribe, you know, of course, I'm retired now, but working for the tribe many years. At one point early in my tenure, I was in charge of the environmental programs. And, you know, we always had Earth Day and some of the things we did were give away little seedlings or little, you know, plants, trees, and people loved it, you know. I mean, who doesn't want to plant a tree in their yard, and especially if it's like a pecan or, you know, a plum or, you know, a fruit tree. I mean, you know, the rewards are delicious. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The fruit and nut trees yeah. always go first at our, at our tree giveaways down here as well. And in a historical narrative, it's amazing how many, you know, political governmental actions have taken place historically, you know, underneath the tree. And for me, Manchu tribal member, I think about that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned just the ways that those trees provide service, right? They're not only, you know, beings in our landscape, they're, they're providing all kinds of service. And, and that, that certainly, yeah, that resonates, right? So this, this special tree down in New Braunfels, this founder's oak, it, uh, it it is to be designated as one of the Comanche marker trees. What kind of hoops does a tree have to jump through in order to get on your radar or on the the council's radar to receive that designation? Well, that's a really interesting process, and some of that criteria is knowing our history and when we appeared in certain parts of the country as Comanche people, and so we look at it from a historical narrative. And so one of the kind of uh, points in the evaluation is determining the age of the tree. And especially if it's been a modified tree, the question becomes, you know, is it within this time frame to have been modified? Um, so we created, you know, we considered, you know, archaeology and we you know, considered the science of the trees themselves. And to my own historical, you know, research and stuff, consider, you know, the timeline of Comanche movements on the landscape and, you know, the various bands associated with Comanche culture. Um, and activities and then ask for more. I ask more questions generally. I don't just accept that. Then I start asking my own questions on top of the information they've gathered. And then at that point, our tribal community is involved, especially our elder council. And I know some of the times they've even gone to our tribal business council to ask for a resolution of, of support of recognizing these trees. 
Well, as as I've been thinking about this tree and thinking about this process and thinking about our conversation, um, one of the things that's really stood out to me is that these big old trees in our landscape, they, they're absolutely living artifacts. It's it's kind of had me, my, my wheels turning about how does that really get picked up and recognized, right? And um, I'm really excited because I think about, and I think I shared this with you before, but I'll share it with you again, that here where I live, there are these beautiful, they call them catopola trees. They're fragrant, they flower. And what's interesting is here, where the prairie grass grew, and now there are lots of trees. Trees were not, you know, here when it was the Indian country still. But now we have these beautiful trees, and actually they came with the Chinese immigrants. So I think, wow, how exciting, you know, that maybe the African-American communities or the Latino communities or even the Asian communities can consider here in the United States those cultural resources and maybe you know, have their own taxonomies and experts to establish some parameters and work with all of us, you know, to you know, talk about these living art- artifacts. It feels like um, it has, it's a very inclusive process, right? Like, like yes. you said, just because it might, as a certain tree might not qualify for this specific designation, it doesn't, it doesn't at all exclude it from, um, being recognized elsewhere. Yeah, because we don't want to discard. We don't want to discard because what's important to one group or community or culture maybe not hold that significance to another. And even here in Oklahoma, I think about like the Murrow, uh, Oklahoma City bombing, you know, there's a tree that survived that blast that's in the garden with the monument that the people really ascribe uh, spiritual purposes to. So if we say, you know, formally this is a Comanche marker tree, and like in this case that you're talking about, the council oak, you know, we recognize that as a council oak because of, you know, council that was held there under that tree. But it has a rich history of other communities, even the German community, that have through the years utilized that tree for various activities, including your religious as well. Um, If a tree has a designation like that, it's not like we have ownership. We're just saying that, you know, we recognize it as being important to our culture. And the great thing is that, you know, lots of cultures and communities can join in to celebrate our connection as people to a location and specifically a tree. Isn't that awesome? It's so inclusive. I I love the idea that that you know, these trees and, and, and this tree, this Founders Oak in particular, it's providing shade to all the cultures that have inhabited this area for hundreds of years. Yeah. And linguistically, I mean, you know, we have, of course, there's a scientific name for these trees and stuff, but linguistically in different cultures, we have names for those trees as well. So in our book, you know, we include some of the names in our native tongue as Comanches, which is a nomina you know, a, a Utah-Aztecan language. So we've included the names in our own language of the type of trees and identified them as such. And uh, But it's awesome to be able to, like, you know, uh, recognize it in your native tongue. No, that makes me happy to, to hear it. Jimmy, this is great. I really, I really appreciate you spending the time talking about, about the trees, about the designations, about your experience with them. I really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and just like you know, having this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for having me, you know, hosting me at any time.
Emily, what a great talk you had with Jimmy Arterberry. The Founders Oak seems to be part of a much larger cultural history. Doug, you know, what what really grabs me is just this idea that Founders Oak has provided shade indiscriminately, right? It's it's there and it's been there. And this tree has provided service to all the cultures that have inhabited that area. That really resonates for me. I feel like also that the tree sort of embodies hopes and dreams. I've got that sense from some of our guests. Sure. Well, standing underneath it, you know, everybody's going to have their own take, right? And, And my take was just, it was simply gravity defying, Doug. Like the amount of mass that is suspended over the ground and that you can walk under and you know, still feel protected. Uh, even, I mean, these are, these are massive trunks suspended, suspended right over where you can walk. I feel like the story of Texas and the Founders Oak are wrapped together like dry rub on barbecue. Ah, dang. Sorry about that. <laughs> this tree and trees like it are living artifacts. These, these represent another era while simultaneously taking up space and existing in the here and now, in our modern day, this tree has persisted. We can have marker trees in our lives that don't have to have a documented story behind them. Trees are special on their own. And we can individually, you and I, we can place meaning on them. And that's still important. And that's still special. I love that. Emily, it was a blast working on this with you. Um, I really enjoyed it. And um, thanks so much for being the Texas correspondent. I've had a really good time, Doug. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity. I'm so glad to have gotten out to the park and visited this tree uh, despite the summer heat. This has been really fun. And we'll be in touch soon. I'm sure that there are more trees to discover. Call me when you're ready to come to Texas again. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> you bet. Take care. I left Texas about a year ago and started off to roam. I started out to see what I could find. I left my sweetie all alone. Thank you for listening to This Old Tree. I'm Doug Still. I hope you enjoyed it. And many, many thanks to the wonderful Emily King of Austin, Texas, for co-hosting this episode about Founders Oak, as well as to all our guests. Tim Barker, Kelly Ebby, Steve Hauser, and Jimmy Arterberry. You can find out more about their work, their books, and their websites in the show notes, or by visiting our own website, thisoldtree.show. I'll be posting pics on Facebook and Instagram. By the way, the music you've been listening to is by Jerry Irby, who is a country singer-songwriter from, you guessed it, New Braunfels, Texas. See you next time. The Alamo That's why I've got the blues for Texas And the gal that's got the blues for me